0: If you join me in opening your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, just turn to the end of it and hang back a few pages, and there's Bibles under seats uh, nearby if you don't have one. We're reading in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is our last message in a series of messages from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and for the rest of the month, we'll have a series in the book of Ruth from uh, several other men leading that time, so I'm looking forward to that. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, let's read God's word to us together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this text shows us that there is a kind of Christianity that Jesus detests. There's a kind of life that some professing Christians live which Jesus feels an inward revulsion. And the other thing that this shows us is that many of them don't even know that Jesus feels this way about them. They don't have enough self-awareness to see their problem. And this is a state of being that any Christian can slide into for a time. And so when we read this text, we need to ask honestly, and I think we are, right? Is this me? Is this us? Every one of these seven messages in Revelation 2 and 3 ends the same way. You can see it at the end of this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what the Spirit is saying to the churches is not a mystery. It's what's right in front of us in this text. That's what that means. The Lord Jesus is speaking to the churches, and then he says, let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Spirit is taking the words of the risen Lord Jesus and speaking them to his churches. So we don't need to set the Bible aside and sit quietly and try to listen. We need to lean in to what Jesus is saying here in these words and be open to what he's saying and have hearts that can receive what he's saying saying. So each of us, myself included, can and must open ourselves up to Jesus here with a posture of humility and ready to hear what he has to say. Now before we get to the heart of this text, let's remember a bit of the context here in Revelation uh, 2 and 3. So this is the seventh and final message that Jesus gives to his churches in this longer letter of the book of Revelation. And so this morning we're at the end of this series in these chapters, and each week we saw that Jesus is addressing a Certain problem or challenge, we'll say, in a church. Not every church had a problem, but every church had a challenge. Uh, Most of them were uh, falling into the temptations in certain ways. Others were doing well, but there's seven potential threats to each church. So, the first challenge was having doctrine without devotion. The church at Ephesus was theologically faithful, but they lost their love. And so, The message of Jesus in that first message in Revelation chapter 2 is uh, addressing the challenge, the temptation to believe right doctrine in our heads, but then lose warm devotion in our hearts. Both are essential. The second challenge is not having courage in a hostile culture. Christians will suffer as their faithful witnesses to Christ living in this current age and will be tempted to be fearful rather than faithful. The third challenge we saw was moral compromise. The church at Pergamum was compromised by participating in what was normal in their culture, which was different forms of idolatry and sexual immorality. The fourth challenge is tolerance of false teaching. The fifth challenge was spiritual complacency. The church at Sardis had a great reputation for being alive and lively, the church where people wanted to be. And yet Jesus says they didn't have the spiritual realities to match it. They looked alive, but they were a dying church. The sixth challenge is discouragement. The church at Philadelphia was small and had little cultural influence and esteem, and so it needed encouragement. So those are the six challenges leading up to this seventh and final one. Put positively, we can see Jesus has a vision for the local church. There's a lot of books that say, here's marks of healthy churches. Here's what churches should look like. This is what's wrong with churches right now. This is what every church can do um, to be better or more fruitful. And Jesus' vision is right here for the local church. And put positively, he says, a local church should care about these six things leading up to the seventh. Love, courage, holiness, truth, spiritual reality, and encouragement. And so now we add to this list a final challenge, the challenge of self-reliance that leads to a lukewarm spiritual life. Jesus invites us to, in this text, to rely on Him for what we all need and want most deeply. He invites us to enjoy Him by depending on Him. And you know, we can't enjoy Jesus unless we depend on Him. Because unless we go to Him to meet our needs, we, we won't look to Him as the true satisfaction of our souls. And so He offers Himself to all who need Him and want Him. So let's walk through this in three steps. The first step, as a warning ahead of time, will be a downward step. And you may feel convicted or discouraged or... Um, it may just feel like a low point, And so I encourage you to receive that if that's a spirit convicting you, but know that the next two steps are upward. Jesus in this text, it's, it's surprising at how strong his words are, um, bringing conviction where it's needed, and yet how amazingly tender they are as well in this text. It's both at the same time. There's conviction and great hope and encouragement from his grace. So the first step Uh, The lukewarm spirituality that Jesus detests. We see this in the first few verses here. Jesus introduces himself as the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He's the beginning of God's creation. I think each of these are titles that refer in one way or another to the fact that Jesus is himself divine, and he is the ruler of all things from beginning to end. Even that phrase, the beginning of God's creation, doesn't mean that he's part of creation. Throughout the book of Revelation, that term beginning or first is used to refer to both God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. It's used, for instance, in phrases like the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It's a divine title referring to his lordship over all things. And when it says he's the beginning of God's creation, I think there are good reasons to believe that what's in mind here is the beginning of God's new creation that's broken into the world, the beginning of the renewal of all things that's already begun and that Christians are a part of. So this is who Jesus is. He's the first one raised from the dead. He was the faithful witness. He is the Lord over all things from beginning to end. Now, what is the church of Laodicea like? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask Jesus, you'll get one answer. If you ask the members of the church, you'll get another answer. So let's ask both of them, because both of them, we find out what they say here. So Jesus first. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, first we may assume that hot is good and cold is bad. So that would mean that Jesus is saying, I wish you were either passionately inflamed for me or that you were dead cold and just reject me altogether. But not this moderate middle. That's probably not what he means. A bit of the historical background can help us here. Laodicea was known for its water problem. uh, The city of Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, and since that city was about four or five miles away, they would build build aqueducts to pipe the water into Laodicea, but by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Another city, Colossae, was about 10 or 11 miles away, and they had cold water year-round from the snow-capped regions there, and so they would pipe that water into Laodicea, and by the time it reached Laodicea, that was lukewarm as well, and so... Neither of those water sources were able to reach Laodicea with the benefit that was ideal or intended, right? Hot water for medicinal purposes, cold water for refreshment. By the time it got to Laodicea, it's lukewarm. So both hot and cold are good here. Doesn't affect the main point either way, because the point is that they're neither. They're lukewarm, and that's the problem. They're lukewarm, and they taste terrible to Jesus. I think of coffee when I read this I love hot coffee. I'm okay with iced coffee, but lukewarm coffee is disgusting to me. I worked hard enough to even like hot coffee, and, and so I, one of my, my most prized possession is a little electric heating pad to just set the mug on there. Um, some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you're probably going to Amazon that later, right? What, what is this heating pad? So you set set the mug right on there. And even as I was studying this text, I was reminded because I forgot to turn it on. 20 minutes went by. Usually 20 minutes, hour doesn't matter. This is piping hot. But since I forgot to turn it on, I put it to my mouth and it was disgusting. And I went straight to the microwave. Um, So that's just a little fraction of how Jesus feels toward his church. It's disgusting to him. And he says that about a church. Lukewarm, he's going to spit them out. That's Jesus' view of the church. Now, what would you hear if you asked the members of that church how they're doing? Verse 17, look here with me. Jesus says to them, you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Laodicea itself as a city was wealthy. It was also a proud city when an earthquake hit in about 80, 60 to 61. Cities were offered government aid. For rebuilding, Philadelphia gratefully received those funds, but Laodicea uh, didn't. Why not? Because they were proud and self-dependent. They said, "No, thank you. We're fine." So that would be like one of those towns or cities in Texas or Florida that were hit recently with hurricanes, and people want to volunteer to help and come give aid, and they just block everyone off and say, "Don't enter. We we have this covered. We're fine. We don't need any help." I mean, wouldn't that be an amazing headline? in the news, right? And it would be rooted in this prideful self-sufficiency of not wanting to depend on others. They say, we're fine. We'll meet our own needs. We have no needs, he says. So it's an affluent church. It's a comfortable church. It's a self-sufficient church. So why does Jesus call them lukewarm? Well, he explains in the second half of verse 17. You can look there with me. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing. So, there's something they don't see about themselves. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So, they were healthy and wealthy. They were living the Laodicean dream, and the affluence made them think that they were spiritually okay as well. This is one of the great dangers of wealth. I mean, wealth is a blessing of God not to be despised, to be received with thankfulness when it comes, but it can also be spiritually dangerous. Why? Because if you have great health and great wealth, you can begin to feel like that kind of health defines your overall health as a person, including your spiritual health. The clothes we wear, the way we physically feel, The homes we live in, they can make us feel good. They can make us feel content. They can make us feel like we don't have any needs. And then we can begin to feel that way overall about everything about us as a person. So those feelings that relate to our physical and financial condition, they can subtly shift over to how we feel about our spiritual condition. We start gauging our spiritual health based on our physical health, or financial well-being. But wealth, of course, doesn't necessarily do this to us. Some Christians in the early church were very wealthy, and they were also spiritually vibrant and spiritually healthy. But Christians in Laodicea weren't like that. They became moderate with their love for Christ. They became complacent about their commitment to Christ. They didn't think they had any needs spiritually because they didn't think they had any needs physically. They got so used to meeting their own needs and being self-sufficient, that they no longer needed Jesus. So Jesus, we see in a few verses, he's outside. They don't need him. They don't need his help. They don't need him at all. So here's what the lesson is not. The lesson is not that it's wrong to have wealth or even much wealth. Here's what the lesson is. Wealth can be very dangerous spiritually without self-awareness. That's the danger of this text. I think self-awareness I've been growing to see this is one of the most important, least talked about aspects of life in general and Christian life in particular. We all have aspects of our lives and aspects of our personalities that we don't understand. We don't even see. Many of us live unaware of what actually motivates us from moment to moment, especially when we have great emotions one way or the other. We don't know why we say what we say, we don't know why we feel. What we feel, we don't know why we get angry when we get angry, or irritable when we get irritable, or frustrated when we get frustrated, or depressed when we get depressed. We have a sense on the surface level, but we are complex creatures, and motives are often layered. They're often deep. I think we're so complex that we will never get to the bottom of it in this life. We, we are, we ourselves are a mystery to ourselves. And we can go crazy trying to figure out ourselves. So I'm not advocating that we go soul spelunking into the dark caverns of our soul all the time. But what we learn from Jesus here is that we can be self-deceived. We do need to care about our motives. We do need to think about our souls long enough to know what is going on inside of me. We do need to look inward to understand ourselves. Otherwise, we can end up like the Laodiceans and not even know it. They only knew themselves skin deep. Jesus' words, yet not realizing. They don't realize what's true of them. Jesus saw deeper, and he saw deep under the surface, and what he saw was a contradiction to what they saw when they looked at themselves. That's astonishing. So we need self-awareness. We need to grow in self-understanding. So very practically, here's what this can look like. Stop one time each day, maybe when you're already slowed down to read the Bible and pray, and consider the state of your soul. Ask a question like, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling that way? Think back over the previous day and pick your most dominant emotion and just ask yourself, why was I like that? What was going on in my soul? What was I hoping to have that I didn't that made me angry or frustrated or sad? Or what was I so excited to have that thrilled me? And what does that tell me about what I love? Am I in in light of this text, ask the question Am I depending on myself like the Laodiceans, or am I moment by moment relying on Jesus? So, that's the first step. Second step in this text is to see the Christ-dependent Christianity that Christ offers. It's a lot of Christ in that heaven heading, and that's the point, because the Laodicean church had decentralized Jesus. They had, they had taken him out of the center, put him outside of their life, and Jesus is calling them to put Jesus back in the center Their life. They had displaced him from the middle, and Jesus is calling to put it back there. So Jesus makes a very tender turn at this point in the message. He had said, "I will spit you out of my mouth" as a warning, but now he turns tenderly. And look how verse eighteen begins: "I counsel you to buy." So he he stands as a counselor, helping us get out of our tepid spirituality. If that's the state of our souls, they know all about buying. They've been buying a lot of things, and Jesus counsels them to buy from him. He doesn't want their money, though. What he offers them, he's already purchased for them. He's purchased for us at the cross. He died for us, he rose again, and he pours out and makes available every spiritual blessing to us. And that's why later in Revelation, he says, for instance, in chapter 21, 6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In twenty two seventeen, he says, let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. So when Jesus offers to them to come to buy, he's not asking for their money. He's not asking for some kind of spiritual merit that they've stored up. He's asking them to come and take and receive freely. Put out their empty hands of faith and receive from him. And we read in verses 18 and 19 what he wanted them to buy. So you can read these with me. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold. Remember, they said they were already rich but he says by gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and sh- the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see it's interesting jesus is offering to them what they thought they already had they thought they were already rich this culture had a great clothing industry with black wool at the time they had a lot of medical advances with eye salve already they thought that they were meeting all their needs just fine, and Jesus calls for that—calls them to look to him to receive what they already most deeply want. But he says, you need something even deeper than these things, and I'm the place to find those needs met. So they wanted to be rich, and they got rich, but because they put their hope in wealth, they were spiritually poor. And so Jesus invites them out of their poverty to get truly rich in him. So the Bible, again, doesn't say that wealth is itself a problem. Or that we should avoid it. But it also doesn't say that wealth is the ultimate source of happiness. Which is why Jesus can look at these wealthy people living uh, in Laodicea and say, you're actually poor. You are not rich. You think you're rich. But you don't have self-understanding. You don't have self-awareness to know that you're spiritually impoverished. Um, If you would turn with me to 2 Timothy, just back a few pages chapter 6. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy how uh, addressing how wealthy people should think about their money. So this is a great complement or supplement to what Jesus says here to the Laodicean church. And so we, we learn a number of things about wealth that complements what Jesus is saying here. First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Three things briefly. First, And these are the lessons that the Laodiceans needed to learn. These are the lessons that we need to continually learn. First, we learn that we should be careful about pride. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, Laodiceans, charge them not to be haughty. So, the Laodicean church had become self-confident, right? They said they had no needs. It made them interpret their spiritual state in light of their physical and financial state. And, and Paul is saying, charge these kinds of people not to be haughty. So there's a subtle temptation to become, I think, not just proud of wealth, but if you have wealth, becoming just a proud kind of person. Self-sufficient. Feeling like we're self-made. That what we have is sheerly because of our skill and our work ethic. But those who have wealth should be humble. Paul says, because everything we have is a gift from God. Every ability we have, every skill we have, every opportunity we have, it's sovereignly ordained by God, which is why the next part of verse 17, he says this, to set our hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So to the wealthy, Paul is saying, have them set their hope in God who's giving them all of that. It's not fundamentally and ultimately because of them, but God. So we are not self-made most fundamentally, we're God-made and God-blessed. So be careful about pride. Second, those who are wealthy in this age are to be generous with our wealth. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the money we have is God's money. It's his gift. And one of the reasons why God gives you and I wealth is so that we would do with that wealth what he's done with it, namely give it. God blesses us to be a blessing. He gives us wealth that we would make others wealthy. That's, that's one of the fundamental reasons why God gives us financial stability or excess in life so that we can help those who don't have that and we can bless them. That's how he blesses them, through us then. And so I want to encourage you as an expression of your dependence on God to give generously, and to give generously in two kinds of ways. One, give to the church, the local church, to further its ministries and mission, and then also plan to give generously in just more organic relational ways as you come across people who have needs. Seek out ways to be a blessing to those who have financial needs. Third thing we learn here are is that we're to prefer the riches of Christ to the riches of this world. You hear how he ended this? Paul tells uh, Timothy to exhort the rich to be rich, or the rich to be rich, but not in money, but in good works. To have treasures in another sense, treasures in heaven. To have life in a different sense. He says, call them to take hold of that which is truly life. So back to Revelation three, Jesus is inviting Christians. To loosen their grip on wealth, to devalue what they overvalue, and to set their hope and joy in Christ rather than their riches, because setting their hope on their riches has made them lukewarm spiritually. And now Jesus reassures them of his love. Verse 19, look here with me. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So Jesus is rebuking his church here, and he wants them to know that he's not doing it because he hates them. He does it because he loves them. And that's the point here, isn't it? We don't often put those two things together in our culture, rebuke and love, right? Correction and compassion. And this is because we often think that if you love someone, you must affirm what they do or what they love. So this is a huge assumption in our culture right now, Um, this bringing together of love and affirmation, this separation of love and rebuke. But Jesus says you can love someone and disagree with them. In fact, Jesus is rebuking them as an expression of love. He's disagreeing with them about what they love and what they do, and he's doing it as an expression of of love, So this is a lesson and a model for Christians, I think, especially in our culture today. Because we can err on one of two sides here. On one side, we can think that if we love people, we must, therefore, as an implication of loving them, celebrate and affirm everything that they do, even if we believe that God would say these are unhealthy and immoral decisions. So in other words, one error is to say that love trumps truth. The other error we can say is that because we disagree with someone, we can be hostile and rude to them and not treat them as though they have dignity. In other words, truth trumping love. But Jesus always holds love and truth together, always holds compassion and correction together. So if you, thinking less horizontally now in our cultural moment and just more right now, if you feel like the Lord Jesus has been convicting you already this morning and, and he's been working on your soul so you feel heavy about what he said in this text so far, about being lukewarm. Jesus wants you to know that uh, if this is his spirit doing that in your heart, it's because he loves you. He's bringing this message to you because he loves you. I'm communicating this message this morning because I love you. Revelation 2 and 3 has shown us this, if it's shown us anything, that Jesus can be for you and have things against you. It's just astonishing. And for those of us who then begin to feel the weight of perhaps having things against us, Jesus having things against us, what we need to believe as well is just because Jesus has things against you and you need to work on some things in your own soul and there's repentance that needs to happen, that doesn't mean he's not for you. One and the same. He is for his people, for his church. He's for you with all his heart. And he may have some things against you. His love, therefore, does two things here. As an expression of love, Jesus both forgives us for all of our sins and the penalty of our sin. And his love leads, leads him to rebuke us for when we're still living in sin. In other words, Jesus accepts us where we are, but he does not leave us where we are. He loves us in our sin, but he does not leave us in our sin. So Jesus calls, if you've been with here these past few weeks, he calls most of his churches in the first century that he's addressing here, most of these seven, to repent in one way or another. And so as long as we'll be sinning in this life, we'll need to be repenting. Which means that as Martin Luther put it, this is um, at the very beginning of his 95 theses, uh, he said that Jesus, when he called to people to repent he was calling for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance that 's astonishing, so repentance is not just a message for someone who has not yet come to know Jesus. It is that repentance turn away from your sin and trust in him. Repentance is for the whole life of believers as long as we 're sinning we 're to be repenting every time we sin that should lead us to fresh repentance. And that's what he calls us to. This has been a regular theme in his messages, Jesus calling Christians to repent. And so as we end this series of these seven messages to the churches, I wanna encourage us to take this word, this word repentance seriously as Christians. Not just as a theological topic, not just as something that we extend to the world, but as Christians. Jesus doesn't just call the world to repent, He doesn't just call those who don't yet know him to repent. He calls his own people to repent often. But this is a huge gap in many of our lives today, I think. If you're like me, your days are busy, right? You're full. Uh, We're crazy busy, as one book title calls it. We go from one thing to the next. I mean, who in here doesn't feel the tiredness of being always busy? Uh, Or at least in some seasons. I know some of us have worked very diligently to have a peaceful, ordered Uh, pace of life. But we all feel the pressure to be busy at times, certainly. And we go from one thing to the next. We feel full and overflowing. And this means that we, if we're in a season of busyness especially, we won't slow down enough to do this self-assessment that Jesus is calling his people to do. We won't slow down enough to have self-awareness of how we are. We won't slow down enough to actually go through a process of repentance. So here's some Honest questions. How many times? I mean, ask this of yourself. How many times this past week did you repent? Actually, go through a process of turning to the Lord and saying, "I'm sorry, I sinned against you. Please forgive me and renew in me a right spirit." Something like that. Some moment where you actually spoke to the Lord in an act of turning from sin. So hold that in mind. Second question. How many times do you suppose you sinned against the Lord this past week? How many times do you think you did something that was offensive to him where you failed to love him above all things or you failed to love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, so those are just answers to both of those questions in our mind. Now, if if it's true that we are and I think it is that we're to, and it is that we're to repent every time we sin, then the Christian life is about learning to close the gap between the answer to those two questions. It's learning to repent when we sin. It's learning to repent immediately when we sin. So I think we need to build margin in our lives. I know I do. Build, build margin in our lives for the purpose of spiritual assessment and sincere repentance and renewal. And this will include moments of deep repentance. So very practically, here's three ways that repentance can fit into your life. If you, if you feel like you need to build fresh margin into your life. First, we should repent immediately when we become aware of our sin. Turn to him and say, I'm sorry for this sin. Please forgive me in light of the cross. Thank you. Second, because we don't often always see our sin right away and we move from one thing to the next and we don't even feel it or see it, we don't become aware of it, then plan to stop at least one time per day to slow down enough to ask yourself that question, ask the Lord to search your heart and show you where you have sinned against Him. Maybe that's when you read the Bible and pray as a daily rhythm. Consider blocking off and asking that question, what do I need to repent of today? Third, we sometimes take uh, occasions on Sunday mornings during our service for a time of repentance and confession of sin. On Communion Sundays and other Sundays, to repent together, we open this time for silent confession. And this is a moment for the Spirit to convict us of anything that we haven't already. Uh, It's often wise to even do this on your way here as we gather, um, to just be honest before the Lord about who you are and grateful for who He is. Now, you may be thinking, this sounds like morbid introspection. I thought the Christian life was supposed to be joyful. And so we need to remember that repentance is the path to true joy. Repentance is the happy path of the Christian. When we sin, the path to true joy is not to be blissfully unaware of it like the Laodiceans. There's a form of happiness we can have being blissfully unaware of who we really are. But that's not true joy, that's surface deep joy. And that's what Jesus is addressing in the church of Laodicea here. There's a path to true joy of acknowledging who we've been, repenting of that, and then rejoicing with all our heart that God has love for us and grace for us from all of his heart. And so it's crucial that we know then the difference between what Tim Keller calls religious repentance and gospel repentance. There's, there's a world of difference between the two of those. So here's religious repentance. It's works-oriented And it's depressing. Some of you have lived, and you know what I'm talking about. You've lived life in the past, perhaps, maybe in a season now, of this kind of religious uh, repentance that's basically a way of saying to God, am I sincere enough yet? It's one more work that we offer him to get him to like us and to be off our case or to give us a blessing or to finally love us. We offer to himself just one more act of great sincerity, of trying to just feel lousy about who we are and feel bad for our sin. We think that the worse we feel, maybe the more God will accept us. We have a better chance of Him accepting us. But gospel repentance is different. Gospel repentance knows that the work has already been done. There is no work to offer to God. Jesus has already died for us. He has risen as the reigning and gracious king. He's paid the penalty for that sin. And so repentance is our way of turning our hearts back to God. It's our way of entering back into joyful fellowship with him. It says, God, I'm returning to you as the source of my joy because I believe that this sin and my ignorance of it has been soul-sucking and life-sucking. And so I'm turning to you for the freedom of fellowship with you again, and I'm coming back to you. I receive your free grace. Tim Keller put it like this in an article, a short article called All of Life is Repentance. You can find it online. He said this, in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ So, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. So, the overall tone of a Christian who repents and lives on God's grace is not one of sadness. The overall tone is not one of somberness. It should be a tone of deep, continual joy, the most continual true joy, the most Um, electrifying happiness. And I say electrifying uh, because of this. This is another statement from Tim Keller from that article. Though, of course, there's always some bitterness in any repentance. In the gospel, there is ultimately a sweetness. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. Now, that's interesting because gospel repentance doesn't just lead to joy. It actually leads to growth the more you see your own flaws and sins, he writes, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. In other words, the more we are just honest with um, our sin and how Jesus feels about it, and the, the more electrifying than his grace will be, the more we'll see his heart of love for us. And the more we see the heart of God's love for us, the more that Sin will be distasteful for us because how could we want to do things contrary to the one who has a heart that loves us so much? This is the dynamic in the heart of a Christian, never perfectly arriving in this life, but continually in process here. So the church in Laodicea was a happy church. They seemed happy with their riches and success and lukewarm Christianity, but Jesus offers them deep joy because Jesus wasn't happy with it, and they shouldn't have been happy with it either. And so the call to a life of repentance is the call to a life of true joy. So final step in our last few minutes here. The surprising future that Jesus promises. And it's surprising because of how gracious it is. Remember who he's talking to. Jesus is talking to a lukewarm church that he said, I will spit you out of my mouth, which wasn't a promise but a warning. We know it wasn't a promise because he offers them an alternate future here if they repent. And so... He did not have to offer this grace. He could have ended it after that statement. I will spit you out of my mouth. But he didn't. He didn't end it there. He has more grace. He calls them into joy in him. And then he promises this amazing future to lukewarm Christians. First, he offers them close friendship. Look at verse 20 again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, he says. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, why is Jesus outside? Because they put him there. They they were fine having a Christianity where Jesus was just present in name. And Jesus says, hey folks, I'm outside. But he also says, just open the door. I'll come right in. And we'll have a meal together. We'll forget all about your past. We'll forget all about these things. I mean, the moment we repent... Our sin is thrown as far as the east as the west away from God's heart. He's not going to bring that up against us. And so that's why Jesus can say, here's what I'm going to do. We'll we'll have a meal together. We'll be friends. I'm the king, and I'm going to spread a table before you, and we'll eat together. A couple of nights ago, I was reading uh, Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son uh, to my boys. And the father in that son embraces this son who repents and comes home. He hugs him. And he kisses him and he throws a feast for him, a meal for him. What what a similar picture uh, as this text is. And I said, that's how God treats us when we trust him. He hugs us and he kisses us. And one of my sons says, wisely uh, and obviously, but we don't feel him hug and kiss us. And so it was helpful for me to think, yeah, what does this mean? Well, Perhaps in the new creation to come, we will receive a hug and a kiss. But until that day, the Spirit helps us feel on our heart a sense of His presence and His love. That's one of the reasons the Holy Spirit was given to Christians. So that we would be able to know and to feel and to experience the heartfelt, infinitely strong love of our Creator and our Savior. He doesn't do this physically, not yet anyways, but His Spirit gives us a sense of it. So that's what's going on here too. We aren't going to actually eat food with Jesus, but the Lord's Supper sure is a sense of communing with Him and eating together and feasting on Christ by faith. And then as we walk in friendship with Jesus and in repentance, we experience this close fellowship with Jesus and the joy of communing with him. And then the the second promise here is a share in his reign. So he offers us a seat at the table, and now a seat on his throne. Look at verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So history is headed to a day when all of creation submits to King Jesus. He will rule over all things. And the Bible also says that his people will share in that rule with him. You know, this is really the the fulfillment of everything we were made to be as creatures, as human beings. God made us to exercise a gentle dominion over this world, and we've all uh, forfeit that because of our sin. Uh, We've not ruled over things. We've been ruled over by our own sinful passions. We've not been gentle. We've often been harsh or we've abdicated our rule. And Jesus is restoring us to this gentle dominion to share in that rule with him over all things. And as we end, here's what's most surprising then. That he would offer these promises to you and me. To people who may have seasons that feel much like this church at Laodicea. He starts with this warning, I'll spit you out of my mouth, but that's, that's a warning, but it's not his preference. His preference is that we would open the door and let him come in and commune with him. And so how can he offer that kind of communion to those who have spurned him so often and have rejected him? Uh, and that's because of um, how he was treated at the cross, right? He was rejected at the cross so that we could be accepted forever. He felt put on the outside at the cross, of even his Father's pleasure, so that we could be brought in to his pleasure and favor forever, surely on terms of grace, just coming to him with openness and communing with him forever. So let's pray now, and I'll leave a few moments here just for silent prayer. Uh, And you can respond however the Lord is leading you and the Spirit's leading you. You may need to begin a process of deeper repentance In confession, or maybe for you, it's just celebrating this communion with Jesus as he's offering it right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your renewing work through your word and your spirit. We lift up our hearts to you in Jesus' name, in the spirit, amen. I'm sad that one's over. Uh, Would you stand and we'll receive a benediction? Uh, And as a reminder, one of the purposes of benedictions um, is to help us remember that Jesus cares about every moment of life, not just what we do on Sundays. And one of the purposes he gathers us together on Sundays to hear his word is so that we would have grace and a renewed mind in order to worship him in everyday life, Monday through Saturday, from here on out. And so, benedictions, take the grace that we've heard from his word, and as we kind of cross over into the rest of our day and week, we carry this with us because all of life Um, should be treated as sacred so in light of that here's a benediction from first thessalonians 3 may the lord make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all so that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our god and father at the coming of our lord jesus with all his saints go in peace enjoy your day